we've been talking about the story of David, we started out by just kind of looking at the idea that you, you don't get to say unjusta anymore. And Jeremy took in this idea of how in the world can we look at people without necessarily judging them? Because God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at our hearts, and that's what's most important. And that whole idea of what you see is not always what you get. And that was, man, I wrestled with that the last week and a half as I've listened and like, wow, wow, what is this? Because so often I would say for me, I do make assumptions a lot of times. And sometimes it's really good and sometimes it comes back to bite me. But it's hard to get out of that habit, isn't it? Anybody else with me on that? Okay, cool. Then I'm not alone in this. Like we, you feel this and I thought, man, what do I do with this? Because some expectations make sense. Some expectations that we, we make in life are natural and normal. And we talked, uh, you know, two weeks ago about how when they were deciding that they wanted a king, what Israel did was they decided this because they looked at the nations around them and said, that's what I want. I want that too. And if they wanted that too, God gave them a king. He looked like what they expected, but if it were to come to, okay, now that he's king, what happens when he dies? Who would be the next king? What would you expect? His son. Why would you expect that? Because that's the way it works, right? That's what all the other nations would do. That's what everyone around would say, okay, the son is going to become the king. But God went outside of the norm, and only David and his family really knew about it. And what's interesting is if you were to look at King Saul and look at his son, King Saul's son had everything that it would take to be one of the most amazing kings of Israel. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his son, but his son's name is Jonathan in the story that we had just read about. And in uh, the, the, the narrative of 1 Samuel in chapters 13 and 14, you, you get introduced to, to Jonathan long before we ever hear about this shepherd boy named David. And Jonathan is just amazing. Jonathan, he reminds me a lot of David in some ways. There's a point in his story where, he, what you should know about Jonathan, he is a bold and strong warrior. He is a bold and strong warrior. Jonathan, um, like I said, long before David, he gets this idea with just his armor bearer going, I think we can surprise attack him. What? Just him and his armor bearer. I think we can kind of crawl up. I think the Lord is going to be with us. If he's with us, we could totally take him out. And so what you read about is this bold, strong, faithful man who's like, let's do it. And God blesses him where one I guess with a armor bearer at his back, it tells us, versus this mini army of Philistines, he takes them all out. And it's like, oh, who is this guy? Complete victory. And in this complete victory, all of the nation is like, wow. They didn't know what happened until he came back and told them because the Philistines all just disappeared. And, and when Jonathan comes back, because he's such a great warrior for his dad, what you would expect in the next king, he's also really wise. Like, he, he, he makes a decision to kind of question his dad at one point. His dad isn't sure what to do, and so he makes his whole army fast while Jonathan's out actually winning a war. Saul's not sure what to do, so he's like, let's everybody fast and not do anything. And Jonathan comes back, and when he comes back, when the king had said fast, anybody who did not fast, which means not eat food, anybody who didn't fast was going to get killed. 
Jonathan doesn't know this happened. He came back. He's so pumped. He's like, the Philistines are running. This is great. And since we're near the woods, there's honeycomb in the woods. So he takes his stick and he's like, and he's like, oh, this is so good. Now, what do you think all the troops around him are going to do? Oh, your dad's going to kill you. Your dad's going to kill you. Your dad's going to kill you. And believe it or not, his dad tries to kill him. He actually brings him before and says, this is a bad thing. I promised God I'd kill whoever it is, even if it's my own son. And right when he goes to kill him, all of the troops and all the people who are there are like, whoa, this is a bad decision. And Jonathan questions his dad and is like, why would you make a decision like this? If we're about to go to war, why would you make us fast and have no energy? We need energy to win. This is dumb. God would not want that. And it's just so amazing that that this happens. And so a couple of years after these moments where Jonathan has shown himself as a mighty warrior, faithful, that he's pursuing God, we read about that, and that he's a wise person, Israel comes up to war again with the Philistines. And this young shepherd boy shows up with cheese and crackers for his brothers, wonders who in the world is challenging this nation, and stands up in his faith for God and says, enough's enough. And this young shepherd boy, David, single-handedly defeats the Goliath the massive giant of the Philistines. And when he does this, King Saul invites him into his home and immediately him and Jonathan strike up a friendship. Hey, so I hear uh, you single-handedly took him on too, huh? Yeah, all right, let's talk about, I mean, you got war stories now to share that no one else has. And it says, it tells us in 1 Samuel that these two began to build a friendship that was unlike any other. A friendship that... They loved each other so much, and Jonathan recognized something in David that was so different because his dad started to spiral out of control. He started to go mad, and he saw the same spirit that was in his dad before pass on, and he saw it in this young boy. And at one point, Jonathan, without anyone really knowing what was going on, gave all of the tools, all of his articles that would have said, you are going to be the next king. And he passed them on to David to say, you will be a better king. You are God's anointed, not me. And it's this unbelievable moment that leads up to the story that Faith had read for us today from 1 Samuel 20, where there is a tension because as David has continued to increase in his ability, in the people's love for him is increasing, he's getting all the accolades Saul's level of respect for him continues to go down. Saul's liking of him goes down to the point where Saul has already tried to kill him twice by pinning him to the wall with spears. We'll talk about that next week if you're like, that's abnormal. Yeah, twice, and then he tries again later. It's like, it, it's crazy. How long do you hang around someone and, you know, getting speared? I don't know. Next week. David knows he's not liked. And so he goes to his best friend, Jonathan. He's like, Jonathan, listen. I don't think your dad likes me. What gives you that idea? This whole spear thing, you know, dinner's not going well. He says he wants to kill me. And Jonathan has such a tight relationship with his dad that he says, listen, I'm going to find out for sure. I'm going to find out because I love you so much. I'll I'll figure it out. We'll do this. And, and, you know, 
they come up with this cool little deal. When I read this story of David and Jonathan, I know they're older, they're adults, I get it, but I still see like two five and six-year-olds hanging out together, and they're like, all right, let's make a deal, you know, and they come up with this like plan to do what they need to do, and so uh, it's, it's great, these little best friends, okay, you do this, I'll do this, and, and in that pact that they're making, Jonathan says something to David that I really want to draw our attention to this morning that Faith had read for us. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse 13, this is what Jonathan says to David. He says, but if he, talking about Saul, is angry and wants you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so that you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all of your enemies from the face of the earth. I don't know if you feel this from Jonathan right now, but he is serious. He completely recognizes, I'm going to go ask my dad and he's the type of guy that he could kill me. This could be the end. He knew that this could cost him his life. And he was tight with his dad, but he also knew the instability of him. And he makes this deal with David and says, if I die, though, think about my future family. Think about who's next and show this faithful love to them. He goes back and he asks his dad, are you cool with David? And he learns not at all. His dad hates him. He wants him dead. And Jonathan begins to grieve, and he's like, oh, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be good. And so they make up this little deal of how to tell each other. And then after these guys who shoot arrows, it's kind of a weird little story. But um, after the coast is clear, Jonathan um, calls for David, and David comes out, and it says this in verse 41, if you jump down in 1 Samuel 20, it says that David came out from where he'd been hiding near the stone pile, and David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left and Jonathan returned to the town. I don't know if you pick up from David, there's, he has a pattern. He has a habit throughout all of scripture. He's a crybaby. I kid you not, if it's like, oh, men aren't emotional. You read David and you realize this man was more in touch with his emotions than most men that I've ever walked with. He cried when he knew he was losing something, and he knew he was losing his best friend in this moment. He was not going to see him. They cry like babies together, knowing this is the end of an era, right? Uh, and, and over the next four years, would you believe that King Saul hunts David like a dog? He hunts David so much that he's chasing him from cave to cave to cave, and, and he will have to find him until there comes a point, and we'll look at it next week, when David, you know, the, the Philistines actually raise up enough because they're like, Saul's so distracted by whoever this dude is. Let's go take Israel. And he's like, oh man, I can't focus on you. I got to protect my nation. And he does that for another four years or so. But while David is on the run, while he's exhausted, 
King Saul finds out one more time and Jonathan hears that Saul's going to get him. And so the deal that they made, Jonathan clearly said to him, if I ever find out my dad's coming for you, I hope I die if I don't tell you. And so he risks his own life one last time. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, three chapters over, it says this in the very last meeting that Jonathan and David will have in verse 15. One day near Horish, David reached, received the news that Saul was on his way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. That's where he was staying at the time. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. He encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. David was wrestling here. It makes sense, doesn't it? And Jonathan knew his friend's soul. He knew uh, what, what he was wrestling with and that God was his grounding his entire life. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I feel like I'm running from thing to thing to thing and, and life feels like it's chasing me, my faith is sometimes the first thing to go. My rhythm with God, my time of worship, my time of prayer, my time of reading, those are the things that tend to slip away. And I wonder if Jonathan knew, like, he's, he's hiding in cave to cave. He's got no routine. He's got no whatever. Jonathan says, I need to encourage you. Keep your eyes and your heart on God. And he continues in verse 15. He says, don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel, and I will be next to you. How cool is that? Jonathan knows the spot he's supposed to be, right? And I will be next to you. As my father, Saul, is well aware. So the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord. Then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horish. You know, when we're running from cave to cave in those seasons of our life, I don't know about you, but I think we need people who come from cave to cave and find us to say, stay strong. I know it's dark in there. I know it's musty. I know it's hard to see the light at that end, but would you do me a favor? Would you please, like Jonathan said to David, don't give up hope. This season will not last forever. While I may be in a decent place right now and you are not, we will one day walk together in the light. We will do this together. Jonathan's not downplaying the struggle that David is in, right? He's reminding David that he's not alone in that struggle. In this moment, he's saying, I'm with you. And when the season is through, I'm going to stand with you. There's nothing worse than when you're stuck in a cave and someone's like, that's okay, you'll get out soon. It'll all work out in the end. Can I throw you in the back of the cave? Come on. We need someone to say, I I'll walk with you here, but... I will walk with you then as well. And in this moment, they re renew that pact from chapter 20 that we looked at. And once again, Jonathan has warned David, and David escapes with his life, and David promises to treat him and his future family with faithful love. How would you feel if you were David? You're stuck in that cave, and your friend comes and says, I just want to remind you we're in this. We got this. This has to be that adrenaline shot that you need to know, I can make it through this season, and he does. And unfortunately, this is the last time that they see each other. Over the next couple of years, Jonathan would fight faithfully as the king's mightiest warrior. He would show up against the Philistines over and over and over, 
And in 1 Samuel 31, we read that Jonathan, along with his brothers and his dad, all die in one battle together. The one who is supposed to be king, according to the rest of Israel, has died. The expected king has died. And when David hears about this, it's wild. He actually composes a funeral song for both of them. A song that he taught all of Israel that was with him to say, we will honor these men with this song. We will sing this to honor them. And, and it's beautiful, beautiful in 2 Samuel chapter 1. You can read about that. But in this moment, I don't know if you know what happens when there's a vacuum of leadership. People try to take control. And so what happens is, is there were people in Saul's camp who decided we need to make sure that someone from Saul's lineage, someone somehow becomes the next king. And yet everyone else who's been following David is like, we've been waiting for this moment. Let's make him king. And you would think, oh, God anointed him when he was 10 and he's going to be king now. This is the moment. Guess what? It's not. He still has to wait another seven years or so. He has a small area that he gets to rule. And for seven years, he goes to battle. Seven and a half years, it happens that they battle this, these two nations, if you will. What do you do when you are then king after seven years? And you remember your best friend in a cave telling you, you're going to be king. Now I'm going to be next to you. You're going to make it through this. There's a light. I know it. And I'm going to be your right-hand man. Where do you go when he's dead? Where do you go when the voice that has built into your life to keep you focused is no longer audible? David does all that he can to unify this nation. And in the very first verse of 1 Samuel chapter 9, David asks this question. One day David asked, it says, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? What do you do when you're king and your right hand is gone? When you're no longer responsible to adhere to the promise that no one knows you made, what do you do then? You follow through on your promises 12 years later. That's what you do when you're a man of integrity. That's, when you do, that's what you do when you've been so faithfully loved. And what happens is there's a guy in the, in, the, in the house who says, oh, like he was a servant of Saul. So David calls him and says, this man's name is Ziba. It's kind of a cool name. He's like, Ziba, you got to tell me, is there anyone left in, David, or in Jonathan's house? Anyone that I can show kindness to? And Ziba's like, there's one that I know of. Just one that I know of. But he might not be the type of person you're looking for. He's not like his dad, Jonathan. You see, when, when news came that Jonathan and Saul died in the same battle, in a vacuum of power, when people try to step into power, especially to be king, you annihilate the entire family line so that no one can take over. That's how you secure your own power. 
is by killing everyone else. And so what a servant does is she takes Jonathan's son, his name is Mephibosheth, and she scoops him up, he's about five years old, and she goes to take off to hide him when this battle finishes, and she hears about it, she trips and drops him. And he can no longer walk because of the injury that he sustains. So now what we find in this hurry is that Jonathan had a son that David knew nothing about. There was someone. And so you know what David does? David sends for this boy who's probably about 13 years old now. And in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show you kindness. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth, check out what he does here. He bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? You see, David has to tell him, do not be afraid. Why? Because here the only son and descendant of King Saul comes in and he's like, I'm going to die. That's what I'm walking into. Here's my death sentence. Don't be afraid. I have, I've made a promise and I can't wait to tell you about this. I can't wait. Fear would have been the natural response for him. But David throws him off. He's like, listen, I I've never met you, but I need to tell you what a promise that I made. That promise was to faithfully love Jonathan and his family. You are that family, and I'm going to give you all the land back that was your grandfather's. That's a lot of land. You understand that, right? This is a massive, massive inheritance. David is giving up a lot to do this. But you know what I love about David? David, in this moment, was not just giving him land, but when he said, I'm giving you this, and I'm inviting you to sit at my table, he was not just giving him wealth, but he was building into his family line. He was giving him his name back. He was giving a family a chance. Jonathan didn't say, care for me and my kid. He said, care for me and my family my future family. That's what faithful love looks like. Someone who reminds us in the cave who we are, but then when we are out, we come through on the promises that we have made. And Mephibosheth, let me tell you, his surprise does not, or his response doesn't surprise me. It's like, uh, uh, your servant, who am I, this dead dog that you would do this? In this culture, he would have had no value. He can't walk. He can't contribute. He's got nothing to offer as a person. And so, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a guy who stays in bed. I'm just a guy who's been hidden and trying to be like lay low and, and, and people ignore me normally, but now culturally they ignore me too. Like I'm not supposed to be seen. Who am I that would sit at your table? And David says, you are like my son and I will be like your father. I will love you the way that your dad loved me and that I loved him. You are supposed to be here. And David in week one said, ah, uh, uh, uh. Everyone else looked at him and said, I'm just a, he's just a shepherd. He's just a this. And when I bet you, 
Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth said, I'm just a dead dog. David knew that that's the lies of the enemy. That's who the enemy says that you are. And he says, you are not like a dead dog. You are like my son. You will come to the table. I wonder if Mephibosheth's words shook him and reminded him of when everyone else shamed him and because he knew what that felt like, he was able to love bigger, love wider. I wonder if Jonathan's voice broke through. The voice in the cave who said, you're going to be king. I know you don't think it. I know that you think you're like a dead dog on the run. I know that you think you're, you're so much less and that most of the nation hates you and my dad wants to kill you, but you are anointed and you are valuable. You are not just. A... Isn't it great when we know who we are that we can then bring others to that place and remind them? This is who we are. As Mephibosheth grew up, um, he never got to hear the voice of Jonathan, ever. Except through the voice of David. Because David so faithfully was loved, he was able to love. And this is where we find ourselves today, in a story that David, true to his character, grounded in his faith in God, follows through on this pact where Jonathan said, but if I die, Treat my family with this faithful love. He could have just restored the land. Instead, he changed his family line. You see, Jonathan kept showing up for David when David gave him nothing in return, right? What could Mephibosheth offer David that he didn't have? Nothing. And yet David continued to show up because that's what faithful love looks like. Faithful love remembers the promises that we've made, the promises that we've agreed to, the pacts that we are in and saying, I will stand strong with you. Faithful love from Jonathan kept showing up. Now faithful love from David will do the same. And so David received it. He gave it. And this faithful love that we read about here became part of the legacy that David passes down from generation to generation of following through on your promises. And just about a thousand years after this moment, one of David's descendants, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, would remind the people who followed him of this same exact lesson on the last night that he spent with them. A night when he knew he would die it was at the Passover celebration, and as they're celebrating this dinner, Jesus tells them in John chapter 15, I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things, so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for your friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. 
Now, there's so much in that passage that we can unpack that, that we have questions about and ideas about, but we're not going to do that because it would not be fair to Jesus' teaching or to our time and, your, and you. So I want to point us right to the heart of that passage in verse 12 where Jesus says, this is my command. If the Savior, the, Jesus the Messiah... Jesus of Nazareth ever says, this is my command, it better cause us to stop, okay? Um, if, if we are students in a class, this is when the disciples, I think you and I should be able to raise our hand and be like, is this one going to be on the test? You know that review question that we all ask and you just like, is, is this going to be on the test? If Jesus says, this is my command, that's the equivalent of a teacher saying, you might want to write this down, it's going to be on the test. You better know this one, I'm telling you, it's a big one. And so what is this huge thing that he says? You really need to pay attention here. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. At this point, you have to remember, Jesus has not gone to the cross for everybody. You and I always make the assumption really quick, and I'm making an assumption about you, and I apologize if you're not in that place. I always make the assumption when I read this verse, Jesus is calling us to die for each other. He's calling us to give up our life for each other. That's what real love looks like. Jesus has not done that. So the disciples would never have thought that. They never would have thought that. The disciples would have heard this newest command love each other in the same way I have loved you, and they would have thought back to the last three years that they had with Jesus. None of them were chosen by traditional teachers of the law. None of them. And yet Jesus loved them enough to see something in them that no one else saw, and that they didn't even see and said, I choose you. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Every fisherman was passed over. Every tax collector, and this one that he picked, that he knew everyone hated him. You, come, come follow me. The religious zealot that was so passionate and misguided, he says, you're going to cause trouble. Come follow me. He chose them. And his faithful love was demonstrated by choosing them. He loved them by teaching in a way that they could understand. He wasn't trying to confuse them or go over their heads. He was constantly reminding themselves, guys, you know where it says. You know where it says. And pointing them back to the truth because there was a lot of traditions that they had to fight against. He demonstrated love for them through forgiveness over and over and over and over and over, right? He was patient with them when they didn't understand. And you know, when they asked those questions, they're like, uh, what do you mean by that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And he's like, okay, cool, cool. We could talk about that, but listen, I'm gonna love you by pushing you to expand your mind too. Don't think of things the way you always have. You need to think about things differently. Things are changing. And he loved them enough to give them space to explore that. He was patient with them. He loved them by letting them be a part of miracles and see that. And then, go do that. No one else was doing this around them at that time. He loved them by celebrating with them when they understood things. He loved them by, by reteaching them every time that they failed. And they're like, uh, we done messed up again. Okay. Okay, come here. Let's go over that again. Let's do this again, over and over and over. Even moments before he gave this command, their master, their teacher, the one that they've all recognized is the son of God, the Messiah. 
took off his outer robe, put on a servant's cloth, and began to wash the disciples' feet. One by one by one, to the point where they were like, you cannot do this. It's below you. Masters don't do this. And Jesus' response is, we're friends. And friends, friends faithfully love each other. And I command you, go and love as I have loved you. You are no master. You are a servant of all that are around you. You are a friend to all who are around you. This was the legacy of King David, passed down to Jesus. And when David and Jonathan made that pack until the last breath, Jonathan kept to it and so did David. And David receiving that faithful love continues his side of it all the way through to Mephibosheth, treating him as one of his own sons. And today I believe that if we, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, this is our command. This one's on the test for us. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. We just sang over and over about, oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Do you really believe that he loves you? Have you experienced his overwhelming love that in your dark places, you've allowed Christ to enter in and the light of who he is has completely transformed who you are even in the dark? To say, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you. I am a friend to the end. And I don't call you a servant. I call you my friend. We have this love together. Have you experienced that love that changes your life? That makes you feel like I can endure this darkness because I know that you are with me. I know that in this world that I will have troubles, but, but you have overcome the world and I will lean on you. If you have not placed your hope and your faith in Jesus, the cave will always be dark. There is no light. No one comes to rescue you the way that Jesus Christ can because it's really hard for the blind to lead the blind. But let me tell you, the light of Christ gives us hope in the dark. And if you find yourself in a cave today, the faithful love of Jesus says, take my hand, you are not alone. I will walk with you. I will be with you. Even if it takes years and years and years, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have you experienced that love? And if you have not, it simply comes to saying, Jesus, I want to experience that. I want to know. I want to know in the depths of who I am this love, this friendship. He extended it to the disciples. He extends it to you. Have you placed your hope, your life in Christ's hands? This is where you are today, and you have not done that. I just want to pause real quick and, and pray. And there's nothing magical about this prayer other than sometimes it's helpful to have words if you're not sure. And if you have not placed your hope in Christ, um, this is a moment where you get to stop and say, Jesus, this is what I want. This is what I want. So would you pray with me? If this is the desire of your heart to, to place your hope in Jesus and ask him to meet you in that dark place. Would you pray? Jesus, I need you. I don't always understand all this, but I know I need you. 
I'm tired of the dark. I'm tired of feeling alone. I'm tired of feeling like I'm on the run battling by myself. Would you be light in the darkness? Would you show me who I am? Jesus, would you give me hope for today and tomorrow? Jesus, I confess I can't do this on my own. I need you. Rescue me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.